Blog Talk Radio. Carol the Coach. Sex, love, and relationships. We talk about it here. Carol the Coach. Compassion with contemporary relevance. I am a psychotherapist. I can be your personal life coach and I can help you with your issues. There are no problems too small or too big. You can talk about anything. Speaker, columnist, radio TV host, and commentator. Carol the Coach brings messages of wellness and empowerment within reach of everyday people every day. Almost five years ago, I lost my soulmate in an accident. He was killed in a plane crash. Life just for me has seemed to stop. There are groups all over the city. I mean, I teach one. It is a specific way to start thinking so that you shift how you see the world, which then shifts your energy, and then you feel better and you actually see things differently. Carol the Coach, always available to at carolthecoach.com. Now I've got Russell on the line. I'm 47 years old. I'm a truck driver. I'm married. I have a wife in San Francisco. Okay. I haven't been home in six months. My thing is, I, I don't know if I have a sex addiction or what the problem is. Why do I want what I can't have? And as mm-hmm. soon as I can have it, I don't want it anymore. You're right on target when you say, I don't know if I have a sexual addiction. Well, guess what? Yes, you do. And you know what? That's my specialty, Russell. So you're at the right place. Continue. I meet women online and, and I'm in a different part of the country. I, I travel all 48 states, so I love sex. I hear self-esteem issues. You never felt good enough and you didn't feel like you were getting what you should have then. And you're re- Enacting that now. Do you want to change that about yourself? You get what you need when you typically put together a plan that acknowledges that you have a sexual addiction and works towards that. And you know, one of the things that I absolutely believe is that you have to have a plan, you've got to have the right committee to support you. You have to have a 12-step group or an Internet group or a religious um, support group for sexual addiction. And the other thing I want to talk to you about tonight is that you have to have a coach. Okay, maybe you don't have to have a coach, but a recovery coach is somebody who is really understanding of your special dilemma and helps you put together a recovery plan that will catapult you into success. And tonight I have Jim Jansen, who was on last week, but we had some technical difficulties, and I asked him to come on again this week because he has a very special offer for our listening audience. Uh, Jim is willing to coach you for four sessions for free and help get you started on your recovery, and then... When a regular coach like myself costs $100 for a 30- to 45-minute session, Jim is willing to do it for $25 so that he can get you started in the right direction. So, Jim, welcome to the show. Hi, Carol. How are you? Well, I am excellent, and I am so pleased that you are willing to offer this special um, special service to my listening audience because I'm telling you, I get a lot of listeners that they want to do better, they want to make their lives different, and yet they've either spent their entire money on their sexual addiction and are really at um, a deficit for what they have in their bank account, or they kind of want to try out coaching to know what it's like before they invest in the process. So, Tell us a little bit about yourself and why you decided to offer this special service. Well, um, I'm a uh, retired pediatrician and uh, am in uh, recovery myself from several addictions, including sex addiction, and uh, um, basically uh, decided to uh, do something that would keep me busy and also uh, give back and uh, help my uh, fellow uh, uh, recovering uh, addicts. And so uh, currently I'm uh, working on my certification through the Institute for Life Coach Training, 
And uh, as part of that, I have to get in a certain number of hours of coaching. Um, and uh, that's uh, one of the reasons I'm offering it uh, for free right now uh, is uh, um, to be helpful. Um, and also it is a benefit to me to get into in my hours, required hours. Well, that makes a lot of sense. And so, first of all, if we have a listening audience that wants to give you a try, um, how can they contact you? Um, well, I went ahead and created a new email address, uh, Recovery Coach Jim, uh, my <laughs> at uh, gmail.com. I thought that was a little easier to, to uh, remember than trying to spell my name. It, it came out a little garbled last time, I think. Okay, so tell so us one more time. Your email address at gmail.com is? Recovery Coach Jim. No dots. Recovery. It's all one word. Got it. And so, obviously, that's recoverycoachjim, J-I-M, at gmail.com. And they can email you there to get specific assistance on getting clear about what they want in terms of their recovery and how to get there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And was I correct that if they decide that they want to opt for more sessions after session number four, they can get a special price right now of $25 for the coaching session? Uh, that's correct. And uh, I'm uh, happy to uh, coach uh, over the phone, uh, Skyping, or if uh, someone is uh, in town and it's convenient for both of us, uh, in person uh, is also an option. Well, that makes a lot of sense. Now, just kind of share with our listening audience. They may not know what does a coach do. What would you say that um, a coach does in terms of getting you to a better recovery plan? Well, uh, one thing it does is uh, helps people to identify their goals and uh, get motivated to accomplish them. And so um, the uh, client does the work in that they're the ones that are coming up with the ideas and, and the reasons for doing the things that they want to do. Um, and uh, the coach helps them to sort those things out, um, understand their motivations, and uh, uh, get energized to uh, accomplish them. Okay. And, so and it's a little, little different than therapy or counseling. Okay, describe the current um, model that you're learning, the current philosophy. Um, well, the... Um, the uh, uh, client does the work um, in that it, it is very much oriented towards uh, working in the present and towards the future, uh, whereas uh, counseling and therapy a lot of times deals with uh, uh, working through past issues. Coaching is much very much very much more uh, future oriented, and. Uh, um, one technique uh, that I'm learning right now um, is uh, based on motivational influence. It's from Michael Pantalon, who is a, uh, a psychologist through Yale. Um, that involves uh, basically um, identifying and the reasons you want to change, um, scaling uh, how, why you want to do that, and then looking at the possible outcomes for doing it, and then making definite plans uh, to uh, to start your journey. And uh, it's a very very convincing uh, uh, technique, I think. Very effective. Right. You kind of share oh, two or three of the questions that you might ask a client who is trying to um, focus on his or her recovery? Well, I guess the first question is, why do you want to be in recovery? And uh, um, what kind of benefits uh, do you see from it? Um, 
And it, it's one thing to be sober because you've had consequences and so you want to be sober. And it's another thing, um, I believe, to actually move forward in your recovery and build a new and better life that's worth living, um, that is a better alternative um, than the way things used to be. Um, and so uh, that's a little different than the than, than the uh, emphasis of a lot of uh, um, rehab, uh, which is stopping the old behavior. Um, and uh, I see uh, recovery coaching as looking towards the future and improving one situation and providing something that is better than what there was in the past. Um, so that that's my my outlook on it. I love that. And you know, one of the things that I know from Patrick Carnes, because I trained as a CSAT with Dr. Carnes, is that he really felt like coaching was an incredible um, option for anybody who wanted recovery. And recovery coaching is becoming very, very popular. And one of the best things about coaching is that you can do it over the phone or through Zoom or through Skype, and you can do that across state lines. So you can coach somebody in another state, in another country, all over the world. So I'm going to encourage my listening audience if you're contemplating what you can do to make a recovery program more beneficial and really fine-tune it so that it works for you, I personally know Dr. Jim, and I have seen his recovery escalate as he used these skills. And you better get them now. Someday you'll be going, oh, my gosh, I got him for $25 an hour. I got him for free at first. And now he's probably charging 150 So I really recommend you to anybody. And, you know, I just so much appreciate the fact that you're willing to give back like that, Dr. Jim. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you, Carol. Absolutely. So they can, again, get a hold of you at recoverycoachjim at gmail.com, correct? That's it. All right. Well, we'll be talking to you soon. Let me know how many listeners sign up for this incredible opportunity. Well, do. All right. Take care. Yeah, thank you again. Bye-bye. Uh-huh. Now, this is really somebody that I absolutely know. I have watched him um, with addicts. I've seen how he works, and... When he said that he was looking for some more um, coaching clients, I said, please, please, please come on my show, describe what you do, and let's give our listening audience a shot at working with you first. What I know to be true is I have over half a million open downloads. That means there are half a million people that listen to this show all over the world. Be the first to get signed up for Dr. Jip. And again, that's recoverycoachjim at gmail.com. Now, tonight, i got to tell you, I am super excited because I'm going to be interviewing two women that have made it their mission to help sex addicts with anger and rage. And tonight, we're going to be talking about how does eroticized rage show up as a contributing factor in sexual addiction? Dr. Patrick Carnes first introduced this concept, oh gosh, maybe 15 years ago. And what he knew to be true is that a certain portion, a certain percentage of his clients um, had rage that in some way had fused with erotica or sexuality and ended up showing up in actual sexual addiction. So I am super excited because I'm going to be interviewing Kate Balistrieri and Lauren Drummett, and they both work for an organization 
that helps people with sexual addiction. And they're going to be talking about the definition of eroticized rage and, you know, how do you know if you got some of that? Because we all have anger. I mean, anger is a normal and necessary emotion. It is what it is. It's how we deal with it and how we make it, um, how we actually process it so that clearly it works for us and motivates us to make some changes in our life. So I can't emphasize enough how this show will really help you to understand normal anger versus anger and eroticized rage that shows up in your sexual addiction. And these women have really created a platform for which they want you to understand this concept. So I've got to say, Kate and Lauren, welcome to Sex Help with Carol the Coach. Hi, Hi, Carol. Thank you How so are much. you, Mrs. Kate? Hi, this yes, is Lauren And I have to say I'm so excited to have you both on. And what I'm going to do, since you're both with me today, is I'm going to direct different questions to each one of you. And we want to know what made you decide that this was an important concept. So I'm going to start with Kate here. Kate, you had said to me before that you really felt like this topic um, was, in essence, a fusion of shame, anger, rage, and sex and relationships, and you saw this in sex addiction. So can you explain what, what you saw and how you explain something called eroticized rage? Absolutely, Carol. Thank you. And, and just a quick thank you for having us on the show today. Um, this topic is very near and dear to my heart as originally, well, and currently, I'm a clinical and forensic psychologist, and my early career was uh, based in the prison systems where I worked with very high-risk offenders in addition to people who were navigating different kinds of addiction, sex addiction being one of them. And I often saw this unparalleled connection between anger and shame and the rage with which the men that I was working with acted out their offending um, crimes, their predicating crimes. So I didn't quite have the vocabulary to understand what I was seeing at that point. But as I moved out of the prison systems and started working in private practice, specifically with sex addiction, I started again seeing all of this emphasis around anger, that people were having a very difficult time expressing directly to their partners. And so what would happen is their anger would get leaked out and acted out sideways and indirectly through their sexual acting out behavior. And you know, this would show up in lots of different ways. So eroticized rage is really about how we act out a desire for power, how we act out a desire to project our shame onto other people and therefore humiliate them or seek vengeance or retaliation for some real or perceived wrong that they've committed um, to us. It's about how we bump up against the norms of our society and in doing so, create an element of risk that feels dangerous. And so that's one place where our rage can get enacted. And also, you know, our desire to possess relational safety shows up through eroticized rage in the form of obsession. And so, you know, best case scenario, that looks like ruminating over and over again about something that has gone awry in our relationship. But worst case scenario, I've seen that look like internet stalking, in-person stalking, and even intimate partner violence and um, you know, intimate partner homicide. So, you know, we're really talking about a very serious construct here that I think a lot of people need to examine because we all have some element of eroticized rage within our potential capacity, whether or not we're a sex addict or, you know, someone who's kind of just a walking wounded person in the world. Oh, absolutely. And so again, would my listening audience think, okay, I have to ha I have to be an offender to have eroticized rage, or can this eroticized rage apply to 
anybody, even somebody who's not in um, the legal system. Oh, absolutely. I mean, people even who don't identify as sex addicts exhibit sexualized rage or eroticized rage. This is something that I firmly believe every person on the planet has the capacity for and exhibits in varying degrees. So certainly, sex, just because someone is a sex addict does not make them an offender. I don't want to be confusing about that um, in sharing a little bit about my background. But certainly in offending cases, there is some sexualized rage inherent in those kinds of crimes. Um, but, you know, sexualized rage or eroticized rage can show up in a very subtle way. So let me give you an example. I'll share a personal example with you. Um, I was out on a date with someone, and it became very clear to, I think, him and certainly to me that he was feeling a bit self-conscious about something that he'd been talking about. And in an effort to find some equilibrium, he sexualized me and made a derogatory comment about my appearance and, and it was very sexual in nature. So he didn't understand what he was doing because this was an unconscious way that he was trying to regain some sense of power when he felt vulnerable. But I understood this as a form of eroticized rage. And it's very subtle and very nuanced. And he certainly didn't mean any harm by it, but it was a way that he was trying to bring himself back up when he felt one down in that moment of vulnerability. Well, that makes all the sense in the world. Now, I've got to ask, and I'm going to ask this to Lauren. Lauren, how do you believe that eroticized rage develops? I mean, what are the precursors or the predisposition to become so rageful that it fuses with erotica and creates erotic, erotic, you know, the eroticized rage? Yeah, I think eroticized rage really is, um, there's a lot of different factors, and I think a lot of it has to do with not being able to express feelings appropriately. And a lot of, many times, um, it stems from, you know, early childhood trauma and having had child experiences that they couldn't process in an appropriate way. Um, and so, for example, sometimes a person may have been bullied. Sometimes they were felt powerless. Other times they were victimized. And so at times it's a way that they are not only acting out like pent-up trauma triggers, um, but that's how they've learned to channel their feelings. And, their, and what we're talking about now is anger. So if they're not feeling like they have a voice to appropriately express their anger, it's frequent that they may go out and act out their anger sexually instead. Got it. Does and that so, answer the question? <laughs> yes, it absolutely did. So then why do you think eroticized rage, Lauren, is a component of sex addiction? You know, what what happens there? Yeah, well, I think that a, another component of it is an attempt to gain power over someone. And so I think that with sex addiction, not always has there been trauma, but frequently there um, there, there was a – Usually people develop addiction when they have not had their emotional needs properly met. And so they learn to rely on themselves in terms of getting their emotional needs met. And so I think it's a maladaptive way to cope and express feelings. And it's a way to um, kind of get back a sense of power that they feel that has been taken away. And so it shows up with sex addiction because often the, 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 the addiction is sex, and so there's a lot of issues with manipulation and power and control around sex. There's also a lot of shame also involved around sex when there's a sexual addiction present. Well, and absolutely. often addicts are and, and often, like, not even aware of their emotions. Yeah, and Kate had said, obviously, that in her own personal story, um, the man that showed that eroticized rage was in a one-down position. And it helped to make him feel like he had more power and control. Right. Mm-hmm. So I think, All right. I think that 
Somebody's on the street there. I'm hearing a siren. There we go. All right. So I think that now was I'm gonna me. Ask I'm so sorry. Kate. That's okay. Who was me? Is that Kate or is that Lauren? That was Lauren. <laughs> okay. So I'm going to ask Kate, is it just the addict that can evidence eroticized rage? Because this is such a technical issue. So, so again, to reiterate, no, not just addicts, not just offenders experience eroticized rage. A lot of people can do that. The reason that I think that eroticized rage is so embedded into sex addiction is because when you think about it, sex addiction emerges because someone is using sex as a coping strategy to regulate their emotions. What are the emotions that people feel most uncomfortable with? Usually it's shame. Usually it's fear. It's feeling helpless or powerless. It's feeling vulnerable. And so when you use sex to cope with those feelings, there becomes a fusion between them. Also, anger is an emotion that a lot of people are afraid to handle directly, sometimes because they didn't have good models for anger. They saw people explode. So they, don't, they didn't learn how to communicate very directly when they were angry with a partner or angry with a peer. And so all of that gets fused into this very unconscious way of navigating these emotions indirectly. And because sex has become a primary coping strategy, this is the fusion of all of these emotions with sexualized behavior. And so oftentimes when someone feels helpless or feels angry, if they're a sex addict, they're using sex to cope with those feelings. And so we see a much higher prevalence of eroticized rage show up in the acting out behaviors of addicts. Okay, and what might those acting out behaviors be? So some of those acting out behaviors can be, just as I described, so sexualizing someone as a way to deflect any uncomfortable feelings. That can take the form of objectifying them in your mind or objectifying them and sexualizing them verbally. They can also look like um, acting out when your partner, when you have a conflict with your partner or you're feeling vulnerable with something that has to do with your partner. So, for example... Um, I work with a lot of people who start to recognize that around big relational benchmarks, they're at a higher risk of relapse in their sex addiction. So what that means is that around commitment steps, so when we move in together, when we decide to get married, when we actually get married, when someone gets pregnant, when the baby comes, all of those things are high-risk situations for addicts to relapse because they bring up, just like with any human, big feelings right? But sex addicts don't have great skills associated with handling those kinds of situations. So I often will say well, I'm people, thinking not only um, feelings, but that feeling of intimacy that is so scary for a sex addict. Absolutely. Totally. So when, so some different examples of acting out behavior might be somebody resorting to going online, going on dating apps and starting to investigate other options and going into fantasy, or they might be watching more pornography and masturbating more regularly um, as a way to cope and acting out if that's in their inner circle. Um, They might engage in extra relational affairs with other people, again, as a way to kind of level the playing field. And when I think about some of the more obvious examples of eroticized rage, I think about what are what are the examples that are designed to humiliate or get retaliation or revenge um, or reestablish power, right? And so some things might include um, a woman having sex with her husband's boss because even if he never finds out, the very idea that he could find out and would be humiliated is been fused into what is part of her arousal template and part of what has become a soothing mechanism for her. Well, and you know, I've got a lot of listeners that are probably thinking to themselves, because I have sex addicts and partners of sex addicts, they may say, oh my gosh, was it eroticized rage that made me act out with my sister-in-law, with my wife's mother, with my wife's daughter? So how do they determine that when 
it looks like it could be a component of eroticized rage, or it could just be a bad decision gone wrong. You know, sexual addiction at its finest in terms of when it's the most intense and it's the most frequent and, and behaviors become so out of control. Well, Carol, what I would say to that is that Dr. Freud said sometimes a cigar is just a cigar, but very rarely is that the case when we think about our unconscious processes. There very rarely are, are coincidences around who an addict chooses to be sexual with, especially in the case of choosing to be sexual with um, someone who's very close to our primary partner. I mean, that certainly increases the level of humiliation. It increases the level of risk. It increases the level of uh, rage associated with um, getting even or trying to usurp power. I mean, that's someone who's very close to the inner circle. And just as you intimated at earlier, when there's a higher level of vulnerability and intimacy, people are more at risk emotionally. And so, you know, if an addict is choosing to act out with someone that close to their partner, usually they're increasing that risk of emotional impact. Yeah, I absolutely agree with you, although I certainly see a percentage of addicts who, because they merge or fuse alcohol or drugs with their sexually addictive behavior, their decision-making becomes so poor and the intensity and frequency of their sex addiction ramps up so much that it's like they, they don't care that it's their wife's sister or their wife's mother. They just... That person looks good, and they are going to flirt with them. And if any response is elicited, they they go for it. And I don't know that that's always eroticized rage. And so I was just wondering, I 100% agree, the factor of humiliation is horrible. I'm not so sure that some sex addicts go for that humiliation and that rage. They are just out of control with their multiple addictions. And so that's why I was asking, how might you be able to tell? And I'm sure it's a very thorough assessment. You two are experts at this. Yeah, I think a lot of the work also is helping them to identify what the feelings are. And sometimes addicts aren't even aware of their feelings because they're so out of touch with them because they've been using their coping skills, their maladaptive coping skills to process their emotions for so or to express their emotions for so long that they're they really have a lack of awareness and so in mm-hmm. order to determine I think it's you know of course you'd assess like what were the circumstances what were the motivations but also doing a lot of work around shame and also around helping them to identify what their feelings are and what feelings motivate what behavior well that makes sense and Kate would you agree with that I absolutely would and, and just to to continue with what I was saying before, I don't think any of this is a conscious decision. Nobody's walking around Mm -hmm. saying, how can I absolutely humiliate my partner with my sex-addicted behaviors? But it it shows up very unconsciously. So what Lauren said, I agree with 100%. It really behooves any addict or anybody who's acted out in this way to really explore the underlying feelings with a therapist who is trained to recognize the symptoms of anger and indirect anger in our behavioral patterns. Yeah, good point. Very good point. Now, I'm going to ask Kate, um, what are some examples of eroticized rage that you've encountered in your work? Um, And if you could help our listening audience know, you know, the different types of sexual addiction in general, I mean, you, you mentioned voyeurism and uh, exhibitionism, certainly frauderism. Explain to them the different types, and then is there a type that eroticized rage shows up more frequently in? Well, just to clarify one point, the, the conditions that you just described are not necessarily types of sex addiction, right? Voyeurism, exhibitionism, frauderism, these are all... Um, potential paraphilias and their their fantasies or behavioral predilections that do involve a violation of consent. So you could argue that these are more likely to be offending patterns. 
Now, certainly people who have a sex addiction could engage in some of those behaviors, but I wouldn't characterize those three conditions as being a, a different styles of sex addiction. When I think about sex addiction, I think about any kind of compulsive sexual pattern of behaviors that someone has tried to stop and they can't. Um, they need perhaps a growing um, number of instances or acuity of instances to achieve the same kind of high or rush. And um, you know, to, to come back to your original question, some different examples, um, I've mentioned a few, but I'll continue. So different kinds of obsessive tendencies could be considered a type of eroticized rage, right? So you know, stalking a partner or becoming obsessed with a partner's whereabouts could be an example of eroticized rage. And I see that a lot with partners, actually, of sex addicts. So they are so flummoxed and so traumatized and so concerned and so angry, understandably so, at their betrayal, that sometimes that anger can show up in these very obsessive tendencies. And that could be an example of a hypervigilance response from somebody who's very traumatized, and or it could be an example of eroticized rage, depending on what the context of their relationship is. Um, so that's something to note, that partners can experience this kind of eroticized rage as well, and it might show up a little bit differently. Um, so sometimes uh, addicts will act out their eroticized rage, as I said, by going to pornography when that's part of their inner circle behaviors or acting out with um, affair partners or seeking new connections through online mediums and apps, or they might solicit a prostitute, they might, you know, engage in any kind of extra relational sexual business. Anything that's outside the boundaries of what the couple has agreed is okay could be considered a form of sexualized rage. Yeah, that's a good point, and I'm glad that you also brought it back to partners because you're right. When anybody is triggered and experiences a betrayal, their prefrontal cortex can go offline and they can begin to become hypervigilant, one, to keep themselves safe, but two, out of that feeling of rejection that turns into anger that turns them into doing things that they would never have done before. Absolutely. I mean, I've worked with a lot of partners who, in learning that their um, spouse has been unfaithful, they immediately go out and have sex with someone else. And that's a clear example of eroticized rage in the form of retaliation. 100%. Now, you know, I know that kink or BDSM can also correlate with eroticized rage. What can you share with us about that? merger? Well, that's a great question, Carol. I, I think that a lot of people, when they hear about eroticized rage or sexualized anger, immediately go towards a pathologizing of BDSM. And while I think that BDSM can include different components of um, eroticized rage, what's great about BDSM, if it's being enacted appropriately within a couple is that there's always consent and communication, and this can be a really healthy sublimation of some of that eroticized rage that is part of someone's arousal template, because it's not all bad, right? And if there's consent and there is communication and cooperation and there's safety being practiced, this can be a really healthy way for couples to tap into those parts of themselves that need expression without having to traverse and, and trample on the boundaries of someone else, which can make it a really healing and bonding experience for people. And I don't mean that in a bondage way. I mean it in a bonding way. Right. Right. Good point. <laughs> and, and, ladies, you know, obviously you two both work. Um, Kate, you are the executive director and co-founder of Triune, and Orrin, you also work at this incredible facility. Tell us where that's located. Tell us how people can contact you and a little bit about triunetherapy.com. Well, uh, um, so I'm the clinical director and I'm also the co-founder of Triune Therapy Group. And we are located in Brentwood, Los Angeles. And 
in order to contact us, people can either um, check us out on Facebook. They can go to our website, which is www.triunetherapy.com. And our website contains information that we have on our individual sessions, our groups, IOPs. We just are beginning to, uh, men's evening IOP for healthy intimacy and relationships. We also do intensives for sex addiction and partners of sex addicts. We also offer a range of other services. And so all of that information is included on the website. Um, they can also call our office and we can give them information over the phone or we can set up an appointment with them. Our, the, the phone number for the office is 310-933-4088. And then we also have an Instagram page as well. And we just started a radio show as well called Behind Closed Doors with Dr. Kate and Lauren, and that's on Saturdays on KABC from 6 p.m. to 7 p.m. Okay, and so that's, that is regular radio. That's not Internet, and that is located right. out of California. So our California listeners can tune into that again Give us the call letters and um, the time. Yeah, sure, can so, I jump in here for a second? Yeah, please. Yeah, so people can listen all over the world at 6 p.m. California time at kabc.com, but also if they go to our website, www.triunetherapy.com, that's T-R-I-U-N-E, they can subscribe to the radio show as a podcast. And on that show, we talk about a lot of different kinds of issues many of which are related to um, sex addiction, eroticized rage, and other uh, topics about sex, relationships, mental health, and so forth. Yeah, that is amazing that you can take drive time and turn it into a podcast that obviously goes across the world. So for our listening audience, they would need to go to your um, triunetherapy.com, correct? And that's T. R I H U N E T H E R A P Y dot com, and then they could sign up or they could find out about the the podcast. Yeah, that website is T R I U N E therapy dot com, and they can subscribe to our podcast or get a bunch of other resources related to addiction. Uh, mental health issues, and as well as all of our different services. And we do have a few online coaching programs available that people can engage with us on uh, across the world. And uh, specifically, one that we're really excited about right now is geared toward recovering from a relationship that's toxic with someone who um, exhibits a lot of narcissistic or antisocial personality traits. So that can be a very traumatizing experience, and, and the program that we've designed is 12 weeks and geared toward really helping people heal and kind of pick up the pieces of, of those uh, experiences in their lives. Okay, and, you know, so many of the clinicians I work with do see a higher level of narcissism in the sex addicts that they work with, and, of course, that can result in a lot of abuse and abusive relational patterns. So you're saying you have a specific program that can help people. Are we talking partners or are we talking addicts? I think both. I mean, if anyone has been in a relationship with someone who has traits of narcissism or traits of antisocial personality disorder, it can be very taxing um, to, to have that kind of a dynamic so anyone who's looking to heal from that kind of relationship would benefit from this program. But also anyone who's grown up with a narcissist would benefit from this program because there are longstanding wounds from having a narcissist as a primary caregiver um, or someone in the family that you've known, and those relationships often leave big scars as well. So it's not just related to romantic partners. Yeah, that's a good point, although certainly if you've grown up with it, you're more likely to attract it into your life on some level. So, um, Exactly. <laughs> excellent, excellent program. It's like you ladies deal with some of the toughest of the tough. We well, do. thank you, and <laughs> that's true. <laughs> yeah, you're combat warriors for sure. Now, 
I do want to ask a couple of questions. Um, you know, if our listening audience believes that they have somebody in their life and they're, they're, they have this relationship where there is recognizable eroticized rage, how would you help them to get a handle on it, and what would you suggest for them? And I'll ask Kate first, and then I'll ask Lauren. Okay. Um, what I would recommend is for them to talk to their therapists about it. And if they don't have a therapist, they're welcome to give us a call, and we can help them find some referrals that are local, or we're certainly willing to help consult with them about whether or not there would be some indications of eroticized rage and different resources that they might um, access to get some help. But certainly just unpacking your concerns with a therapist and uh, someone who's well-versed in this area would be the place that I would recommend starting because it's not like we're all little cookie cutters, right? We, we don't all show up the same way. We are all unique snowflakes in the sense that we all have our own arousal template. We all have our own ways of handling our feelings. And while there might be some similarities between addicts, between partners, between other groupings of people, um, no one size fits all. So it's really important to talk with someone about how you're seeing it show up in your life, whether you're on the receiving end or the person who's guilty of perpetrating uh, your eroticized rage against someone that you care about. Okay, good point. And Lauren, what about you? Well, I agree with Kate um, in terms of, you know, what to do if you feel that your partner is acting that out. And, you know, just to, you know, add to that, I would maybe talk a little bit about, like, how do you treat that? Um, you know, and what if your partner is acting out um, eroticized rage, like, and you're wondering how is that going to be treated? I think the treatment actually begins in, you know, helping them to explore the origin of their feelings and exploring times when they felt angry or powerless and out of control, um, having them do a lot of work around shame, thinking, looking at, like, why they are, um, what's the payoff of certain sexual acting out behaviors, and also learning to, teaching them how to handle their emotions and process their emotions in healthy ways, especially with their loved ones. So in this sense, couples therapy could be really helpful. Um, I definitely think they need individual therapy um, before they're ready to engage in couples therapy. But, you know, they need to learn some self-soothing strategies. They learn, need to learn how to tolerate discomfort around the feelings that they're experiencing. It's also helpful for them to learn how to communicate and how to set boundaries. I think boundaries are a big precursor to a lot of that rage. Well, absolutely, and it certainly is a way to keep somebody safe and to help you decide what is it you need in a relationship, not only for safety, but in terms of being able to take the relationship further. Boundaries are really, right. really important. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. And, yeah. How about you, Lauren? Oh, that was me. <laughs> I'm know, sorry, Lauren. How about you, Kate? <laughs> Um, I, I answered the question again, and I agree with everything that Lauren just added to my question or to my answer. I think that really this work is about looking inward and recognizing where you can improve your own um, boundaries and how you communicate your feelings with people and also what you're willing to um, navigate in terms of setting limits and adhering to those limits in your relationship because ultimately – you know, we teach people how to treat us. And so we have to get very clear about what our own boundaries are, what our limits are, and what we're putting out into the relationship so that we can learn how to negotiate effectively with our partners and address conflict from the same side of, of, the, um, of the battle, right? Because a lot of times when we're in that state with our partners, we're kind of going tête-à-tête with them. We imagine that they are on the other side of this conflict, but my goal in working with couples is to help them recognize that really they're on the same team here and the conflict is the thing that they're addressing together. And so if we can work on that paradigm shift with couples really examining what their own needs are, what their limits are, what their boundaries are, then I think people can really find a lot of resolve in learning how to 
address the rage as it enters in the relationship because we're all human beings and we all feel these feelings. We all have anger. We all have panic. We all have rage. We all have shame. So no one's unique in that. And the more we can humanize it and normalize it, the more easy it is to metabolize it in a healthy way. Well, I 100% agree with you. And I'm always telling my clients, you know, feelings are not right or wrong. They just are. Now, they can manifest themselves. And they can manifest themselves in situations that become problematic. And they can certainly end up, oh, um, in exaggerated forms. Now, Certainly somebody who is angry, um, they may need to talk to their therapist about, does this work against me? Do I become passive-aggressive? Do I become aggressive? Do I do things behind someone's back that humiliates them either publicly or, as you mentioned in an earlier earlier scenario, um, Without them even knowing. And so eroticized rage is not good. And I know you ladies are both CSATs. And and when we first learned about eroticized rage, Dr. Patrick Carnes had had a picture of a big glacier, a big pointed glacier. And he said, you know, these are the things you think you're angry about, but underneath the water, deep down in terms of its roots, there are probably many betrayals that occurred that made you very, very angry. Would you agree? Mm-hmm. And so, Absolutely. Yeah. Can you just name some of those layers that are below the level that maybe not everybody sees, but if you really examined your life, you would have to admit that they brought intense rage. Carol, what I would say to that is that we have to look at anger as what it is, right? Anger is a secondary emotion that serves a very important purpose for us as human beings. When we feel anger, this is our body's way of telling us that we don't like the way we're being treated and we have to advocate for ourselves, okay? Because usually there is some other feeling that's coming up that feels even more uncomfortable than anger, usually things like shame, fear, um, remorse, uh, feeling powerless or helpless. So what I would say to someone is, what are some of the earliest examples in your life where you remember feeling helplessness or powerlessness or feeling invalidated or feeling shame for something? And those are likely going to start filling in the gaps for someone to understand where this rage come from, comes from and what it is, uh, what they're trying to accomplish with their acting out behavior. Yeah, that's, that's a good way to kind of assess what's gone on and how it has affected you. Because I, I do agree. I believe that, you know, feelings are normal, natural, and necessary. It's how you process them what support you have to process them, and what ends up transpiring as a result of them. And I remember when when I was doing some pre-CSAC courses with Dr. Carnes, and he said, you know, so oftentimes when something terrible is happening to you in your childhood and then you fuse it with sexuality, perhaps it's pornography, perhaps it's, fondling a neighbor, perhaps it's being fondled by a neighbor, a stepfather, a grandfather, a mother, whatever, that that experience can fuse and actually be medication to help you deal with that intense rage. And then that becomes problematic as you get older. And so eroticized rage can really fuse with sexuality and end up showing up as maladaptive behavior. And I I think that's what Lauren kept saying earlier in the show. It's maladaptive behavior. Right. Yeah. 
All right, so we're I, ending, getting close to ending the show, and I want to know from each one of you, what else might you want to tell our listening audience? Well, I Lauren, can just do you want to start? Start first? Yeah, I can just start by saying that I think a lot of recovery has to do with learning to be conscious. And we bring the unconscious to the conscious surface so that we can begin to identify what our feelings are so that we can learn to appropriately express them. And I think a lot of it is also learning to be emotionally mature. I think a lot of times we are emotionally stunted in our development, especially when we've had trauma. And so it's important to explore like what the wounds were and why we learn to adapt by engaging in certain behaviors. And usually the behaviors we're engaging in or the addictive behaviors we're engaging in were some form of maladaptive coping. And so it's about learning to take care of ourselves and set boundaries and learning effective communication skills. And in a sense, it's like emotional adulting. And that takes quite a level of consciousness to be aware of that. And it takes a lot of courage. It takes Absolutely. a lot of courage to and sometimes face you... those painful feelings. Okay. Anything you might add to that? Well, I, I think I would echo everything that Lauren just said. And the one thing that I, I think I would like to add is that a lot of people get very confused about the difference between anger as an emotion and rage as a behavior. And so when we're doing the work of recovery, it's really important to get in touch with anger as an emotion, but replace the behavior with something that is effective and adaptive in terms of learning how to cope with that anger. Because oftentimes, again, as I said before, people are really afraid to be in touch with their anger, but anger is such a necessary emotion, and it's usually a protective emotion because we have some other hurt or grief that we're really defending against with gusto. And so learning how to welcome our anger and use it constructively is one of the biggest tasks of recovery, and it can be challenging. But when you can learn how to replace the maladaptive behaviors with more adaptive and constructive behaviors, this is the gift of direct communication. This is the gift of recovery. And this is where people start to feel really Um, empowered and autonomous in their ability to, as Lauren put it so eloquently, emotionally adult. Yeah, and, you know, it's interesting because I always tell my clients that anger and conflict is normal, natural, necessary, and truly, if handled appropriately, it will draw you closer and create intimacy. But when it becomes mm-hmm. maladaptive and, and it's not safe to share, um, it then becomes a problem. And so in and of itself, it's just another emotion. It's basically what you do with it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So one more time, ladies, let people know how they can get a hold of you, what your website is, and, again, your podcast and your uh, radio show. Sure. So, again, I'm Dr. Kate Balistrieri. I'm a licensed clinical and forensic psychologist. And Lauren Dummett is um, my co-founder in starting Triune Therapy Group. People can find us on the web at www.triunetherapy.com. That's T-R-I-U-N-E therapy.com. They can also call us at 310-933-4088. They can go to our website to subscribe to our podcast for Behind Closed Doors with Dr. Kate and Lauren if they want more information about sex, relationships, love, mental health, addiction, all of it. We thank you so much, Carol, for having us on the show. Yeah, thank you so much. Oh, you're so welcome, and I'm so excited that you have taken – you know, this, the psychoeducation to the airwaves, because let's face it, media is where it's at to disseminate information and That's get right. it to the masses. So as I said earlier, and I mean this 100%, you are quite the duo. I can, I can <laughs> tell that anybody would be fortunate 
to come work with both of you, and um, I encourage my listeners to go to the website, take a look at their materials, subscribe to their podcast, and learn more from them. They have a lot to offer. Thank you, ladies, so much. Thank you. Thank you Thank so you, much. Carol. Have a great night, everyone. Thank hey, you. Thank you. Too. Talk to you later. Bye. So that was obviously helpful information about anger and about rage and eroticized rage. And if you think that you're suffering from that, I would Google it and I would get on sexhelp.com. There are several articles about eroticized rage. And then you can tell that these women at their website, www.triunetherapy.com, that's T-R-I-U-N-E, Therapy.com also have information that you probably will find very helpful. So now it's time to end the show, but I want to tell you there will only be one of you at all times. I fearlessly want you to have the courage to be yourself. I want you to call Dr. Jim and get in for that free coaching, and uh, we'll see you next week for more Sex Help with Carol, the coach. Make it a good one.